All right. I know we're used to normally five minutes of wandering around, but uh, if you can find your seats, and we're going to be turning in our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9 tonight. Um, Be still and know I'm going to try to go from 9 to 11, so just be still and... (laughs) All right. So let's... um, Let's pray as we open the Word of God tonight. So, Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. And, um, Lord, we, we need Your Holy Spirit to just guide and direct, Lord, to speak to our hearts, to open our minds, to allow us to know Your truth, to see You as the awesome God that You are. Uh, Lord, we need Your power in this place. We've already sung about it. And, God, we, just, we need You here because we can do nothing without You, Lord. So we're just praying as we open Your Word, Lord. You just speak to us. And... Uh, Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, um, yes, yeah, so Zechariah chapter 9, and I'll give a, uh, a brief rundown in case this is your first time here, but we've been making our way through Zechariah. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 were um, a set of visions given to Israel when they were in the process of rebuilding the temple. So they had come back from Babylonian exile. They needed encouragement. And that's what we saw in those visions. It showed the people that God was with them. When they were in a situation, they had been, felt like they had been cast off, that they were, and now they were coming back. So the Lord was trying to tell them, I'm still with you. You're still my chosen people. He was going to restore them. He was going to restore Israel, restore the temple, restore Jerusalem. Their future was secure because God was declaring it to them. And then last week, uh, we talked about chapters 7 and 8. And in chapters 7 and 8, um, God answered an inquiry into about fasting. You know, they wanted to know, should we keep fasting over the temple that had been destroyed because now it was being rebuilt? And, and God spoke to them and just said that, you know, that what you were doing, you weren't even thinking about me when you were fasting anyway. So you weren't thinking of me at all. You weren't thinking of those things. So God was telling them that obedience to him from their heart was what he was looking for. And not going through the emotions of spirituality, kind of, you know, what we were already talking about. It's not about works, works, works. It's talking about knowing and relationship with God and living through that. So God wanted national repentance, real restoration, And we ended chapter 8 with a beautiful thing. God was proclaiming that there's a glorious future where the Jews and the Gentiles are going to come together and there's going to be this amazing thing. They're going to be worshiping the Lord of hosts. And what's interesting is, so we get, so that's through chapter 8. When we get to chapter 9, 9 through 14, kind of things get a little different. Uh, Zechariah is believed to be much older at this point in time. Um, The temple's been completed. Uh, Zechariah is looking more towards the future of Israel, looking, there's a lot in here that talks about the coming Messiah. So 9 through 11 mainly speak of the Messiah who is to come. So they were waiting for his first advent, for Christ to come. And it, a lot of this leads all the way up to Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70. Chapters 12 through 14 mainly speak of Jesus' second coming. So he's got all this in there. So there's one thing we need to realize when we look at prophets of the Old Testament. The, the prophets of the Old Testament had, they couldn't see the church age that we're in. They would see prophecies 
for the end of time, they would see the Messiah off in the distance, and it's almost like looking at a mountain range. They would see these mountains in it all, so they're seeing stuff, but they don't see the valleys. As you would get closer, you don't see the valleys. You don't see that there's time in between those two mountains. And so that comes up a lot here in Zechariah. Sometimes he'll be talking about Christ's first appearance, or his first coming, and then his second coming. We'll, we'll see that all throughout it. So it, it ends up intertwining in the prophecies that are given. And I got to tell you, when you look at future prophecy, I, I struggle to say, how does, it, how does this apply to my life? You know, you're like, Christ is coming, we got all those things. And I think about it, and then I, you know, the classic verse that we go to, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when we know prophecy, God is equipping us for every good work that we're going to go out and do. We, we as Christians have hope because we know what's coming. We, God's doing that. He's laying that out for us. And many times God just puts on display some things about himself. Maybe he's talking about he's just declaring his work or he's talking about um, some other attribute that might be on display, like his, his power or his sovereignty. Um, but he's giving these for a reason to declare his glories to us, right? And so this chapter, chapter 9 is fascinating, and I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. But um, we're going to look at a prophecy that God puts such amazing accuracy into what happened. And it's prophecy that's been fulfilled. So we've got two in chapter 9. One is we're going to talk about two conquerors. The first conqueror overthrows some world powers, and then the second is Jesus Christ. So one is a near fulfillment, but for Zechariah... That's within 200 years. So when I say near, 200 years from Zechariah, we have, we have this fulfilled. And then the second is a future fulfillment. Um, so we, one through eight, we're going to see this prophecy of the first conqueror, and then we're going to see the second conqueror in nine through 17. And a lot of times we get prophecy this way. So when we see one fulfilled, it gives us hope for the second one that, 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 that reassures us. This was true, and we can believe in the one that's to come. So that's going to be happening. And, and God details in chapter 9 the conquest of Alexander the Great as he moves south through Israel. And Alexander the Great was an unrighteous, ungodly ruler, and he was used by God to destroy the nations and to save Israel. And so um, let's pick up in verse, verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men in all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. So, a lot of stuff happening here, but it starts with bringing a burden or a heavy pronouncement of the word of the Lord against Hadrach. And Hadrach, it's talking about Syria, this Medo-Persian area, and the center of the judgment is going to be in Damascus. And Damascus was one of Israel's worst enemies, and it was the capital of Syria. So Alexander the Great, if you don't know your history, and I'm not some amazing history buff, but when you look at when you begin to look at the conquests of Alexander the Great, 
it, it details it exactly what Alexander the Great did, and we see it here in chapter 9. So in, in 30, 333 BC, Alexander the Great defeated the Persians in, uh, at the Battle of Issus, and it began to break the back of the Medo-Persians. He started up there. So verse 2, it talks about Hamath, and that was a territory of the uh, Medo-Persians. And he says, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. So Tyre and Sidon were the capital cities of the country of Phoenicia. I'm giving you tons of data, I know. But there's great ships. They had great shipbuilding, that sort of thing, a lot of commerce. They were a big empire as well. And, and though they, they thought they were very wise, and that wisdom made them think that nobody could defeat them. And before Alexander the Great came in, they had their city in, on, on land, and um, the Babylonians came in, and it took them 13 years. They were fighting against, fighting against Tyre, and they were trying to get in. Well, that whole time that they were fighting against it, Tyre was moving their city out to an island that was half a mile out into the ocean, or well, out in the Mediterranean Sea. So they're moving it this whole time. And so when the Babylonians broke through the walls, finally, there was nothing really there to conquer because they had moved their whole city out to out out into the ocean. They're, um, Mediterranean Sea. They're out a half a mile out there, and that kind of like broke the back of the Babylonians. They left. But Alexander the Great, so it was this fortress. It was like a rock out there. They built this wall, and there's statements that say that they had a wall that was 150 feet high. Could have been an exaggeration, but that was, that was what was said. It's extremely wealthy city. So when Alexander the Great came, he comes to Tyre, and he takes all the rubble that the Babylonians had left from the original city of Tyre, and he takes it, and he builds a causeway. He dumps it all into the sea and builds a causeway. It takes him seven months. He had, um, he had uh, um, all these slaves doing it that he had picked up along the way. Seven months, they go out there. They defeat Tyre. They burn, it, burn the city to the ground, or to the rock, or whatever was out there in the ocean. And <clears throat> other rulers were unable to defeat him, but this God was able to bring this judgment against the city. And today, there's really nothing of consequence there. There's another amazing prophecy that talks about Tyre, and it's in Ezekiel 26. I don't know if you want to turn there. But Ezekiel 26, verses 3 through 6, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you. And that was the case. They had many other nations trying to come up against them. As seas... As the sea causes its waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. And this place where Tyre is today is used for fishing operations. It's where people are spreading nets. Truly an amazing prophecy. Both of these prophets laying this out. So he, he had wiped out Syria. Phoenicia, he's making his way down. And the next place he comes to when he's moving south, Alexander the Great, is Philistia. And so we pick up in verse 5. It says, Ashkelon shall see it in fear. They're going to be afraid when they see this coming. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. 
A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. So we've got a few cities here. We've got Ashkelon, Gaza, Ashdod, Ekron. These are all Philistine cities. All of them are seeing this destruction coming their way. And it says in particular that the king shall perish from Gaza. And it took five months for Alexander to get to Gaza because they kept resisting him. And by the end of the five months, Alexander was losing his mind. He was really angry about it. And so to show his anger, he took the king and he took some spikes, drilled holes through the feet of the king, put these thongs around him and drug him through, drug him through the city and streets until he was dead. And so it's very interesting that the one king they talk about here in uh, chapter 9 is that the king from Gaza is going to be wiped out. And it says a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. In other words, the Philistines would lose their country to some kind of scavengers, uh, some alien people. And if you think about the Philistines, they're they don't exist anymore. They were going to be. They were. They were gone. And when we get to verse seven, um, the Philistine nation is talked about, is pictured as a man, and this man has blood in his teeth, abominations between his teeth, and the Philistines had. They were pagan worshipers, and they were doing all these things. They were blasphemous sacrifices. They would drink the blood, eat the sacrifices, all this crazy stuff. And God was using Alexander as a means of judgment that would cause them to move away from their idolatry. And they would spit it out, is what he's saying here. So the beautiful thing about the judgment of God is it can have a redeeming quality, and that's what happened with them. They it says that they'll become like a ruler in Judah. So they're going to become some people who are important in some way. And when God saves people, he doesn't put, to just put them on the sideline. He's bringing them to be part of the kingdom, to be a part of it. And we see the name Ekron here. And that was a symbol of the people of Philistia. And Ekron, it says, would be like a Jebusite. So when David took Jerusalem, the Jebusites dwelt there. And the Jebusites, uh, many of the Jebusites believed in God and they became, they kind of got merged in, and it's saying they're going to be absorbed into the Jews, just like the Jebusites. So there, there was this redeeming piece. So we, we have a, so when we look at all this, we see the destruction of God using this pagan ruler to come down and, and execute judgment. You know, we can wonder, are we, how are we dealing with what God brings into our life. If we're not walking in obedience to the Lord and he brings chastisement against us in some way, we have a choice of how we can view that. You know, what is that going to look like? For some of them, that led to some revival in their lives and others, they just were so into their wickedness, they went nowhere. So turn to Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 real quick because there's a thing about the chastisement of the Lord. And if we look at that quickly, Hebrews 12. You, God is doing, he's got purposes for when we are not walking in obedience to him. You know, and, and verse 7 of Hebrews 12 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have been part, become partakers, then you are illegit illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. 
Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There, there's some training that God does when we are the, a loving, merciful God draws us back. And sometimes it takes something this drastic to happen. And what ends up happening, the, one of the, the coolest stories here as we get, get back to Zechariah chapter 9, you know, it's beautiful to see that some of these people like, were transformed by this. They saw the real God through all this. But the most amazing part of this story for me is, or this chapter, this prophecy, is, comes in verse 8. It says, I will camp around my house, God speaking here. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. So Alexander the Great's next stop was Jerusalem. He's coming down, and God's speaking here, and he says he's going to camp around. Now, if you remember back in the previous chapters, you know, Zechariah had already had some uh, encounters with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him, you know, those, his people. And he says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come. And this is precisely describes what happens when he was advancing into Jerusalem. So uh, Josephus gives us some information. Josephus was a, uh, a Jewish historian. And he tells us that um, Alexander, uh, Alexander the Great had begun, he, he sent word to the, the Jewish high priest at the time, and he wanted them to pay tribute to him. And the Jews had allegiances to Persia, and so they wouldn't come down. They were, um, they were ruling the world, so he, didn't refu he refused to give it. So Alexander gets in a rage. He decides he's going to come. He's going to destroy them, come down to Jerusalem and destroy them. Uh, so the high priest called everybody together, and he demanded that they all sacrifice to God, fall on their knees, pray for deliverance. And one night, God gave the high priest a dream, and he told him in a dream to go out, meet Alexander as he's traveling down the road, and welcome him to the city, which would have been the most strange thing of strange things. So Alexander and his army were marching along to the city, and the high priest goes out. He's got his festival garments on it. His, his other attending priests have their white garment. This whole procession is going out to meet Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great sees this, instead of destroying them, he bows. He pays homage to them when he comes. And Alexander said that when he... Recently, when he was in Macedonia, before he left, he had a dream about this procession that was going to be coming towards him. And so instead of destroying them, he loved them. And, and like he went into the temple with them. He had animals and sacrificed with them. He decided to treat them with kindness. And even, you know, so he ends up passing by, goes down to Egypt, does what he needs to do, comes back up, passes by again, and he never touches Jerusalem. So that's exactly what happens here in verse 8. You know, so you read through all that, and you're seeing all this, and, I, and one of the questions that came to mind is, why is God laying this thing out for us? Like, why, what's the big deal about, like, why would he lay out this, yes, sin needs to be dealt with. Yes, we have those things. Um, but there's a, sub, there's a couple things that are significant for me. Um, you know, it does. It gives us confidence, God's faithfulness. We see this. God says he's going to do something, and he does it. I mean, it was, this was almost 200 years later, and God mapped out this whole thing, said all these things that were going to happen through Zechariah. 
And it strengthens our faith. Fulfilled prophecy does that. Um, really helps build our confidence in the Word of God. But secondly, and um, I can't take credit for this because this was Wearsby that brought this up to my mind, Warren Wearsby. But he said, um, these conquests of Alexander the Great, the entire ancient world began to speak Greek. So this made it possible for the spreading of the teaching of the Gospels when they were written, and it made it possible, this allowed the Gospel to spread throughout the world because this all happened. And so I think that really encourages my heart that, you know, there's all kinds of situations that are going on in our world. What is God doing in those situations? He may be doing something amazing. We heard about it in Jamaica, right? We, when God is doing something, we as Christians, we aren't going to be sitting back going, uh, it all went to pot. God's never going to be able to use any of this stuff. This is something where you go, how could these crazy things happen and yet God's going to use it in a miraculous way? And it led to the spreading of the gospel and it's led to us all standing in this church together. I mean, this is kind of amazing. But <clears throat> the classic example for me is, is Jim Elliott going into uh, Ecuador and the Aka Indians. He went in there Never even had an opportunity to talk to them. I don't know if everybody knows that story, but everybody's shaking their head. Some people are. They go in there. I mean, that was something where they never even got to speak, and yet God used that for the tribe. To, they all got killed when they went in there. The, the, um, the, the Indians killed them, and then the tribe ended up accepting the wives. God raised up missionaries that died, and he also raised up the wives. And they went in there, and God used it in an amazing way. So what seems like tragedy was actually God moving and working to bring about his purposes, which is amazing. So I know that trusting the Lord can be a struggle when we don't know everything that's going on. Like, that's difficult for us. But the beauty of, like, prophecy is we know the, we know the conclusion. We, know, we have insight into what's happening and how things are going to go. And so we know who wins, and that's the most amazing thing that we can now live with. So in the middle of verse 8, he bridges the centuries. And he, it says, and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore. And that can only refer to the second coming because they had all kinds of different oppressors come against them. The Holy Spirit jumps from Alexander to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes and destroys the nations and saves his people, nobody, no oppressor is going to pass through them ever again. So this human conqueror was just a signpost to keep our eyes on the fact that part of the prophecy was fulfilled. The second part will also be. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's a change in kings here. We have a, we have a completely different king than this conqueror that was coming. And what's this new king called us to do? rejoice. And we're commanded to rejoice greatly about this new king that's coming. Why? Because he's just and having salvation. And justice speaks of his judgment, salvation. He's got this saving that's going to come along with him. This is a completely different conqueror. This isn't a foreign tyrant. This is going to be Israel's own king. He's not cruel and oppressive. He's righteous. He's not slaying. He's saving, which is cool. He's not rich and powerful, he's poor and meek. He doesn't ride a steed, he rides a donkey. We've got a completely contrasting people. Huge different from Alexander the, the Conqueror, the Great. This king is coming riding on a donkey's cult. 
And that's an amazing prophecy that we know was fulfilled in Matthew 21 when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Jesus came in a common way, and uh, he wasn't coming as someone too marvelous to interact with. You know, he was humble, lowly, so that we could come to him. Um, celebrities, everybody that's of power in our world today, you know, we look at them and they're unapproachable. You know, and yet Christ came to be approached. He came to be drawn near to, and everyone can gain access to this king through Jesus Christ. I mean, we have that opportunity to come close. It says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We move from his first coming to his second coming. We've got that, we've got that happening here. And what's going to happen at his second coming? Well, we're going to have conquest. This no longer is it going to be deep humiliation. It's going to be the affliction, the affliction of Messiah is past. Now he's coming for glory and exaltation. You can understand. I mean, this is some of the things that I could look at and say, I can see how the Jews would have misunderstood because they kept saying, shouldn't he be doing this and shouldn't he be doing that? Well, they're getting these things intertwined together and yet they missed the point that Christ had to die first. And so we see that here. It says he's going to cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Basically, he's saying, I'm going to end war. That's what's going to happen because he's going to speak peace to the nations. So he's going to rule over the world. And this river that it's talking about would be the river Euphrates. It would be on the eastern side of the border. And the land originally given to Abraham. And from that point, all around the world will be a place where Jesus is going to reign. It says in verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And waterless pits were like these cisterns that, um, that were cracked. They couldn't hold water anymore. They'd throw people in there to die because they weren't good for anything. So they throw them in. And God's saying, I'm going to fulfill my covenant with you. I'm going to save these people out of this situation. In the near fulfillment, that would have been continuing to be, bring people back from Babylon. But in the future fulfillment, that's going to be people going to be restored because of the blood of the covenant. Verse 12, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. So God continues to call his people to repent. We've seen that all throughout this. And he's saying, I'm not just going to come back and give you blessing. I'm going to give you double blessing when you come back. 13 says, for I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion. So he's, he's using Judah as a bow. He's using Ephraim as the arrow. He says, O son, uh, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a, um, of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. So Judah is the bow, Ephraim's the arrow. God's saying, I'm going to use you as a weapon against Greece. And there's only been one time in the history when God used Israel to defeat Greece, and that was the intertestamental period, um, the 400 years. The, there was, they were dominated by Greece, and the, um, there was a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a terrible dude. He went in there and shoved um, stuffed pork down the throats of the priests. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He was a terrible guy, not a, not a good man. And this infuriated um, 
Judas Maccabeus, he was a Jewish man who started a rebellion against Greece. And this war lasted for uh, eight years, or 12 years from uh, 175 BC to 163 BC, fought them off, they won their independence. And that's a historical picture of when that happened, but ultimately this is going to be also fulfilled in the end times. So 15 says, the Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. So the Lord of hosts is going to defend them. And the Lord, verse 16, their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his head, over his land. Uh, So we have, I, I just see this interesting. We've, we've got a shepherd. He's talking about his flock, but we've also got a king. We've got the shepherd king saving his flock. Uh, the saved remnant are going to be like a sparkling jewel in the crown of the Messiah. Beautiful picture there. Verse 17, for how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine, the young women. The response to all this is praise in the kingdom. There's going to be no lack. It's going to be joyous. Um, I think when we, when we look at this type of thing and we look at what God does and how he's moving around, the key for us is that God does not take sin lightly. I mean, there is, you know, it is destructive. Um, but, you know, as we see all this and we go, you know, we kind of, I don't know, sometimes we go, oh, they, they deserve that or whatever. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, you know. That, that's what we see. But God's judgment comes because man loves darkness more than he loves the light. And, you know, we are out here trying to proclaim the gospel to people and let them see the light. That's, our, that's what we're doing now. We're trying to lead people to Christ. Um, God is showing that he's the defender of Israel, and, and that's what we've seen with him as the angel of the Lord who's been defending. And when we get to Zechariah 10... Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. And a lot of people believe that this verse goes with chapter 10. You know, the man put the chapters together. But uh, 10, 1 kind of goes back with, uh, into chapter 9. But it's, it's this, um, it's speaking of this, plentifulness of the rain and rains needed for the crops to flourish obviously we need that Israel it was real bad Um, there was a time in Israel's history when the Turks took over and everyone and and they taxed everyone by the amount of trees that they had on their land and so what if you if you wanted to not be taxed as much you cut your trees down well that led to uh, great issues in Israel and so when Israel came back um, this thing, this latter rains, the, the latter rains went away because the ecosystem got all screwed up. And when they came back as a nation in 1948, they began this tree, this forestation restoration project that's been going on. And the, the rains are back. The, 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 um, the latter rains actually come in March and April. And when we were there, we felt the latter rains. <laughs> it was, <laughs> we got a little more rain than we wanted there, but that was the latter rains in March and April. And so not only is this physical rain, you know, there's this, many, many people believe that this latter rain that's coming is a sign that the end times are coming, that God was going to bring back the latter rains in the end times. And Joel speaks of 
this spiritual changing that's going to happen, that, that God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh in the last days. Um, I find it interesting here that God calls them and asks for us to pray in the days of the latter rain. So pray for rain. So when it's supposed to rain, the latter times, you know, they're coming. We're supposed to ask for it. We're supposed to ask for rain. And, and God wants us to pray in these times when he promises to give. And how much are we praying and asking the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous? If we're in the days when God is calling us to pray and, and see the Holy Spirit being poured out in our lives, are we praying for that? How often are we neglecting to call upon God and just give what he's promised to give? Like, do we take it for granted or are we calling upon it? It's, it's often we neglect to pray for the simple things in life, and yet God is a God who blesses, you know? And I don't think we want to live as people who think that God's holding on to all these things and he doesn't want to pour out blessing. God wants to pour out blessing. He's calling us here to pray. You know, if you need it, pray for it. God wants us to do that. Recognize that God wants to bless. Um, verse 2, it says, For the idols speak delusion, the diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. Pre-captivity, before they went into captivity, Israel was engaged in a lot of idol worship. Um, after the exile, there's no indication that Israel went back into idol worship, but idols <laughs> tend to creep into our lives. You know, there's things we begin to trust in besides the Lord, and, and God is saying they, they give you lies. They give you false dreams. They, they're the things that God wants us to put away. Anything that we lean on other than him for, for guidance is always going to lead to wrong results. That, that's what we're seeing here. And it's God's desire for us to go towards him. When, when God, and the other thing that's happening here is he starts talking about the people are going away, going away around like uh, sheep with no shepherd. That's, that's a bad situation. I don't know if you've studied too much on sheep, but they're dumb, you know. And, and we, sheep need everything. I mean, it's like, if you read about sheep, if one sheep decides to wander off, the other ones will follow him. He'll walk right off a cliff and they'll follow him. I mean, it's like, no wonder God refers to us as sheep sometimes. It's just insane, you know. So their wool overgrows. They need a shepherd for everything. If they get parasites, their hooves overgrow, like they can't move. It's just insane. They're basically defenseless animals that are just sitting there waiting to screw up, you know? And I feel like we can be that sometimes. So a lack of godly leadership, and the people were like sheep with no shepherd when there's no godly leadership in their lives. And when Christ came, you know, the leadership of the, of the people, the scribes, priests, Pharisees, they weren't leading as they should. And this may speak to the possibility that sometime in the future that Israel may be struggling again with this idol worship that we see, where they're looking to other things instead of the godly leadership that they need. And we know in Revelation that John speaks about how Israel is going to be deceived by the Antichrist, and we know that. He sets himself up and calling everybody to worship him. And verse 3 says, God is, God is angry. It's kindled against these shepherds, these leaders. A bad shepherd is as bad as having no shepherd at all. And uh, but the Lord of hosts, look what he says. He's going to visit his flock. 
They're no longer going to be sheep without a shepherd. He's going to come. And when Christ comes back, he's going to come in judgment and use the nation of Israel as his war horse is what we see here. And verse 4 says, from him comes the cornerstone. From him is Judah. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler together. So from Judah is going to come the cornerstone. And we know that in the Old Testament, we've seen that the Messiah, these are all roles of the Messiah. And Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and he that believeth shall not be ashamed. But the big problem we read in Romans 9 says they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They, they, they were messed up by this. But he was the stone that holds the walls. He gives support. He gives stability. That was the Messiah. And Christ is the one who's going to come and give stability to Israel. He also calls him a tent peg, and a tent peg was the, the thing that there would be a post, and they would jam a, a, a peg into it, a nail, to hold up the center post of a, of a tent. And he's the thing that's going to hold Israel together. Talks about them being, he's going to be, he's called the battle bow. At his second coming, he's going to be the conqueror, and he's going to be a, he is a warrior who will come and destroy the enemy. So the results of all this, that every oppressor together is going to be scattered. And verse 5 says, They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. So Christ is going to return. Uh, even though Israel had rejected him, one day Judah will have this marvelous power. They're going to come back. They're going to be transformed into the power of God. It talks about this house of Judah and, and house of Joseph. That's, that's speaking of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. God's going to restore the nation as a whole. And they're going to be as though they were never cast aside, which is just an amazing thing. That, um, what a comfort for these Jewish people. And he says, why will he do it? I think this is interesting here. He says, because I am the Lord their God, and the word for God there is Jehovah. And Jehovah is his covenant-keeping name. He made a covenant, and he's going to keep it with them. Verse 7 says, those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So they're going to be rejoicing like people who have had little too much wine. You can, that, you can get that picture in your head, can't you? The rejoicing with that. It'll be infectious joy that's going to bring the children along. And verse 8 says, I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased, I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. We have a great picture here. He's, he's whistling to gather his people in, and I don't know what your father did or mother or my dad used to when I was out playing he would whistle and I could be four houses up and I would hear that whistle and it was like my response was coming I mean I just knew that when he whistled I went and that's the picture we have here he's gonna whistle and bring them back so they're gonna know they're gonna hear it and know they will increase as they once increased and you gotta think back to um, the times when they were in Egypt and they, this population explosion, that's what he's talking about. And d during the millennial kingdom, 
you know, there's going to be Jews that are redeemed and they're, they're going to come out of the tribulation and it says they're going to live long lives and have children. Um, Isaiah speaks to this. It says if someone dies at 100, they're going to be considered dying as a child because life is going to be so long. And you can remember, if you remember back to Zechariah 2, but he talked about there was going to be a, a city without walls for the population of people. We remember that. So we have seen this since AD 70 that Israel has been dispersed all over the world, but, but they have been coming back. We're seeing sort of a fulfillment of that, them coming back. And verse 11 says, He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. But in order for God to whistle and bring them all back, God's going to have to remove these obstacles. He's going to strike the waves. You know, this imagery, you, can, you see it in the Red Sea or the Jordan River. You have that same sort of imagery here. And this is a reflection on God, how faithful he is, and these powerful moments, and he's going to do it again. So he's going to tear down the enemies, and the common enemies were Assyria and Egypt. He's bringing those down. And look what he says. He says, so I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. All of history is going to culminate in the return and reign of Christ. Truly amazing. And we've got to get to chapter 11. I'm sorry, but we're going to, we're going to go because it comes off of that. You know, we, we, we have to finish 10 to, to go to 11. There's this rejection of the good shepherd and in, in chapter 11. And this chapter goes not so much about the second coming of Christ, as the first coming. Chapter 11 tells us why the promises of 9 and 10 didn't come to pass when Jesus came the first time, because chapter 11 tells us they rejected him when he came. It says, verses 1 through 1 says, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Jordan is in ruins. So there's three sections of land here. We've got Lebanon, Bashan, Jordan, and, and this speaking of a judgment that was coming down from the north. It's sweeping down to Israel. Lebanon was known for their cedars, and they were used construction of the Solomon's Temple. You may remember that. And Jordan had this foliage, deep foliage, and Bashan had oak trees. So it's really speaking of that, and God is declaring this devastating destruction is coming down from the north. And scholars believe this is referring to the destruction of Israel as in, in Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD, when, when you look through all this. Um, the Roman army came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and over one million Jews were died, and the reason for the judgment was they rejected the shepherd, and that's what we're seeing here, whale. It says, verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them, for I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from the land, from their hand. So Zechariah begins to act out, and we've seen this with other prophets, acting out something. And Zechariah is acting out this prophecy of a good shepherd and his flock. And everything Zechariah does is Christ, is a picture of Jesus Christ. So first, Zechariah is to feed the flock for slaughter. So the word here for feed 
in the Hebrew means to tend. So he's, he's care for, he's to feed, he's to lead, he's to nurse. Do all these things a good shepherd would do. Feed the flock, the word of God, like the true shepherd. But this flock is different. This is a different type of flock, right? It's, a, it's intended to be slaughtered. And the flock is the covenant nation, but the covenant nation has been unfaithful. So since they rejected the shepherd, they are the flock that's going to be slaughtered. They're going to be a judgment. There's going to be judgment. But before the judgment come, God wants them to be fed one more time. And that's what Christ did. Essentially, he comes, gives them a, cho a choice to listen. And God's giving us that same choice. Are we going to hear the good shepherd turn to him? We have the full revelation of Christ. Are we going to turn to him in these moments? It says, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. So Rome, the owners, they were oppressing and they felt no guilt about it. They felt nothing they did was wrong. They were just doing what they were, thought they should do. Uh, they not only oppressed the people, but they were made rich as they were wiping out the people. They sold them into slavery after AD 70. It wasn't bad enough that the Gentile nations were doing this to them. They also, the leaders of Israel did nothing, and that's what God is speaking to here. They didn't teach them proper spiritual truth, and God ends up giving them over to the king they chose. That's what he says here. They didn't want Jesus as their king. You remember before Pilate, he said, am I going to kill your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So they, they turned over, they put themselves in Caesar's hand, and Caesar ended up wiping them out. They decided to kill the true king to avoid Roman takeover in the very thing they were trying to avoid is when the happening to them because they had um, rejected the true, the true shepherd, the, the true king. They brought about the judgment of God and the destruction of Rome. It says, so here he picks up in verse 7. He's picking up, he's resuming his thought. He says, so I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. So Zechariah starts playing this out. He's feeding the flock. And the message was that the, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to feed the people. And there was no greater feeder of the people than Christ, right? His, his teachings. So he was declaring the truth to the flock. He was demonstrating to them that he was the Christ. And look in, in particular, he says, in particular, the poor of the flock. Those were the ones. And we remember, we, if we look in Mark 12, it says, and the common people heard him gladly, which really cool. So the, the common people. He was greatly embraced by the poor. The leaders didn't embrace Jesus. And when we think about the Old Testament, poor a lot of times in the Psalms refers to a believing remnant. So we have this poor that's listening. There's going to be a believing remnant that's going to be fed when Christ came the first time. And so Zechariah has these two staffs, and every shepherd would have two staffs. One was, one was hard for beating off animals, and the other one was a soft, kind of a gentle thing to take care of sheep that would be going astray. So he, his first stick is called beauty. When you think about Christ, gentle, loving, graceful, merciful, gracious, forgiving. The second stick was called bonds or unity or union. and something that ties everything together, and that's what the message that Christ had, to bring the people together, bring them back. In verse 8, he says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. And who are these three shepherds? All kinds of thoughts on that. But some people believe it was the priests, the elders, the scribes. Um, Jesus did put them in their place. But I find it hard to believe that 
that it says, my soul loathed them. But that word for um, loathe can also mean lost patience with. And I think Christ, numerous times, lost patience with the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the time. Verse 9 says, then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. So the flock didn't want to be fed and he didn't feed them. It sounds like Romans 1 where God gave them over to reprobate, you know, the reprobate minds where they didn't want to hear and he gave them over. They didn't want Jesus. He let them have what they wanted and Josephus tells us about horrible cannibalism when they came in that, that they were eating each other because they were in Jerusalem. Verse 10, and I took my staff beauty and I cut it in two that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the people. So God had this covenant of protecting Israel. His promise was that no nation would be, come in, destroy them. And uh, he allowed the Romans to come in and, and devastate the people. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So once again, we see the poor of the flock in an AD 70 the flock would have been the church. It would have been those believers. And when they saw this happening, they knew it was from God. They knew that this was happening. 12 says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And Matthew tells us that this prophecy concerned Jesus when he came, that that, that happened. 30 pieces of silver was compensation paid to a, for a slave that had been gored by an ox. And they said Jesus was worth the slave's price. That's all. And he, he judged them severely because they rejected their king in this amazing prophecy that says, throw it to the potter. You know, we know that Judas came in, took money, threw it threw it on the ground, Matthew 27, and they scooped it up, went out and gave it, uh, gave it to a potter to buy his field. Totally amazing um, how that played out. Verse 14 says, Then I cut into my own my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so he's breaking the second staff, symbolic of destroying the nation, and they all they went into a dispersion. So just to kind of pull everything together, the message of what we've studied in this part is that the destruction of Jerusalem, before it happens, Jehovah is going to appear in the person of Jesus Christ. He's going to attempt to feed the flock, and they're destined for slaughter. Only the poor of the flock would follow his word and rest. And the rest, especially the leaders, would reject it. But um, this good shepherd, the king, he'll have no more value than a common slave. He's going to be mocked, and judgment's going to come, and uh, they're going to be, it's going to be playing out this way. And so we get to 15, and we end up with a different thing that Zechariah is going to play out. He says, And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. And so there's this gap between 14 and 50. It jumps all the way from 70 AD to the Great Tribulation. It's now, it changes from a, the true shepherd to a wicked shepherd, this foolish shepherd. And, and Zechariah tells us that Israel is going to accept this false shepherd. Daniel 9.27 says they make a covenant with the prince for the time of the tribulation. 
And Zechariah begins to play out this part of the Antichrist. The word foolish in the Old Testament is a synonym for wicked. So this is a wicked shepherd. And he's not looking, what does a wicked shepherd do? He doesn't look after the flock. Um, for three and a half years, everything's going great in the tribulation. And then he turns on Israel, forces them to worship him. And it's interesting that God raises up this shepherd. Nothing is outside of God's control. He, he's going to allow this guy to come into power, come on the scene. Look what he, he, he will not take care of. Take care for those that are cut off. So it's talking about sheep who are dying. He's, he has no concern for those who are dying, nor seek the young. He has no concern for the little lambs either, nor heal those that are broken. Lambs break their legs all the time. He wouldn't care about them. No concern. Nor feed those that will stand, that still stand. Basically, you know, those that have nothing wrong with them, he's not going to care about them either. That's, that's what's happening. So he will eat the flesh of the fat, tear their hooves in pieces. You know, it's... It's terrible. He's, he's going to devour the flock. That's what he's going to do. And ultimately, a woe is going to be brought against the shepherd. And this curse is going to come against him. And God is going to come with a sword of judgment. He's going to cut off the arm. That arm is always a symbol of strength in the Old Testament. And the power of the Antichrist is ultimately going to be cut down and destroyed. And we have reference to this in Revelation 13. Speaks of this mortal wound that's going to come against the, uh, the Antichrist. And so when we know the end, and it gives us a, a greater knowledge to be equipped. So we're thinking about you know, what God does and how he's using all of Scripture to transform our lives and, and move us and equip us to, be, to know the glories of God and to be able to go out into the world. You know, people struggle with fear of the unknown. I'm, I'm facing it all the time at work. People always ask me, what in the world's going on? And, and when we have this type of thing laid out, you know, God wants people to trust in Christ today. Like, this is it. And this prophecy speaks um, that, that there's going to be a spirit. We, we know that there's a spirit of Antichrist that's going to come in the, in the last days, not deceiving people. And he's deceiving people today. Um, it's going to lead to destruction in people's lives, just like we're seeing it here at the end times. The, only the true shepherd cares for us and cares for his people. And, and so when we turn to him, he's the shepherd to follow. So we've seen a king, we've seen a shepherd, the good shepherd, the good king. And so as we, as we think about these prophecies, I'm, I'm just, um, my heart is enriched because we know that God is working in miraculous ways and these things will come to pass in the future. So let's pray. <clears throat> so Lord, we just thank you and we thank you that you have laid out um, the future for us, Lord. And, and we have hope, we have joy. We are, um, it's just wonderful to know, God, that we can trust in you and in your power and in what you're going to do and the miraculous things that you're going to do. We thank you for the Messiah that came, Lord. We thank you that we can trust in him for salvation. And Lord, we just pray that um, as we go out, Lord, may we be able to take the information that, that we get, that as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and moves in the lives of the people we come in contact with, God. We, we need your power to kind of to, to work us through, to help us to have conversations, to spread the gospel, Lord, and, and use us to, for your glory, Lord, that, that we may see more people come to know you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.